Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I want to talk to you briefly about a great American song that I've only recently been paying attention to. I've heard the song before, like I've heard it on the radio, and I've heard it in stores and at restaurants and bars, but I've never heard the song before, if you know what I mean. I really never pay attention to lyrics, unless it's Leonard Cohen, in which case I'm like, Talmudically attentive to the implications of every word, but normally, like, I catch the chorus and a few lines in between, and then I just get a sense of, like, oh, yeah, that song, that song is about, um, this woman, Lucy, she, she's a thief, and she was, she's absconded, Lucy is a jewel thief, and she stole, she, I'm, I take it she robbed a, a jewel place and absconded with her loot in some sort of steam-powered vehicle to the clouds. I never really know what songs are about, but this song, you have heard it too. Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. Return of the Mac came out in 1996. It's basically a breakup song, but it's like a very empowered breakup song, and there's nothing, there's no trace of romantic turbulence in my life right now for like the first time in a very long time. So it seems weird that I should be coming across and really avidly appreciating this song now for like the first time or actually it happened a few months ago but i just didn't do an episode about it and i've been listening to the song all morning so i'm going to read you the first like stanza verse of the song i pulled up the lyrics on google ooh oh oh ooh come on oh ooh yeah that's that's the first line well i tried to tell you so Yes, I did. That's the great thing. The great thing about the song is like he makes a statement and then his own voice as like a chorus, it was just like a sidekick, chimes in just to, to back him up. Well, I tried to tell you so. Yes, I did. But I guess you didn't know. As I said, the story goes, baby, now I got the flow. Because I knew it from the start, baby, when you broke my heart, that I had to come again and show you that I'm real. And then he's like, oh, you lied to me, you lied to me. And then he starts saying like, return of the mech. And that's the chorus, return of the Mac. And that's the part that I've always been familiar with. So if someone said, hey, do you know the song Return of the Mac? I'd have been like, oh yeah, that's the one that goes, return of the Mac. What I did not know is that he's talking about, yeah, the return of the Mac. The Mac is him. The Mac is him. He's talking about himself. He's talking about like, he got his heart, he got super, he got dumped, he got his heart broken, and now... He is going, he's coming back onto the scene. A colleague of mine was just talking about how her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend is now dating a former friend of hers. And she's like, yeah, I'm upset because it feels like a betrayal. But she was saying she's consoled by the fact that her friend, in her estimation, is unattractive. And I was like, why is that a consolation? And she goes, because I was afraid that after he dumped me, he was going to bounce back with a baddie. And so here, Return of the Mac, like, I, I would have thought like, oh, the Mac, I guess, I don't know, is the the girlfriend's ex or the Mac is like some event or some other person who's stepping back into his life. But no, he is speaking about his own return to the scene in the third person. The implication being that when he now returns to the dating scene, he is going to, he's going to Mac so hard. He's going to be so much the Mac that it is a disembodying experience. And he says in the song, like, I, I reached out, I let the people know 
that I'm back to run the show. So imagine that. He, he's so confident that in advance of going out on the dating scene, he's calling people. He's calling the people who used to go to, like, clubs with him. And he's like, hey, just so you know, the Mac... The Mac is returning. And his friends are probably like, what does that mean? Who's the Mac? And then he says, I am the Mac. And in the chorus, he goes, return of the Mac. It is return of the Mac. Come on, return of the Mac. Oh my God. And I fucking love that. The way he says, oh my God. Because yeah, he's mesmerized by something and he's like, oh my God. This is a fantastic thing that I'm witnessing. But the thing is him. And that, that has become my shit. Every time I'm pleased with myself. Every time I look in the mirror and I look a little sharper than I expected. I just submitted this new book to my agent and I've been, I don't know if she's gonna want to represent it, if it's gonna be up her alley, and I've been fretting about it for like over a month, and for the first time in a bunch of weeks, I reread the first 20 pages, and I was like, oh this God. is good, I like it, maybe it's, I don't know if she's gonna like it, but I'm, I'm pleased with it. One of my favorite YouTube channels is, uh, it's called Beyond the Trailer. It's a very popular channel with almost a million subscribers, but really it's just known as Grace Randolph, which is the name of the host. I don't know why for a while I, I felt like it was inappropriate to use this moniker for her, but I do, I get you would refer to Grace Randolph basically as a journalist. She's a, she's a Hollywood business journalist because basically what she does is, you know, apart from, of course, movie reviews in, on her movie channel, she does three or four live streams a week where she just, it, it's like a, it's like a one hour or two hour news report. She latches on to three major stories from the past couple days in Hollywood. Usually the first one is about something that's ongoing, whether it's an ongoing TV show or a movie. The second one is something to do with the business side of Hollywood, TV or movie production. And then the third story is something within the industry, but slightly more kind of just human interest. And she's got her sources. She is a, a very diligent researcher. At the end of every live stream, she opens the floor to a Q&A and very, very seldom does anyone ask a question that stumps her. By any metric, she's a journalist. And it was interesting for me to like reflect on why does it feel weird for me to identify her as a journalist. And I think it's because whenever I think of a journalist, I think of the institution for which they report. Like if I was to tell you about my favorite journalist writers, I would say, you know, David Remnick of The New Yorker, Ezra Klein of The New York Times. But Grace Randolph started her own YouTube channel and she kind of built it up from a very small, very modest, very focused thing into, into something with a way broader scope. And the reason she comes to mind now is because Grace Randolph's beat is Hollywood. It's movies, it's TV shows, but it's also the human interest element of people like to know the, the life stories of these stars. They like to know the historical details of how certain movies were made or received, how they failed and disappeared and came back with a cult following. But Grace Randolph's profession, which is to be immersed in Hollywood and entertainment, is also her hobby. It's her pastime. And so constantly, day by day, probably every day of her mature life, she has been accumulating and is actively, ongoingly accumulating a greater and greater store of just experiences, impressions that she can draw upon for her live streams. And because that personal reservoir of impressions and ideas and memories and expertise is ever expanding, Grace Randolph becomes the kind of creator whose who's allure, if, you know, if she floats your boat, is basically inexhaustible. Today, while walking the dog, I was listening to like an archived 
uh, live stream that she recorded a few days ago, and I was thinking about you know, the, the podcast that I'm recording, and I was just thinking about like how exhausting it might be to have to generate that much material that consistently, to hold that material and hold yourself to the same standard, and even the video reviews that she uploads to her channel, which are pre-recorded, there's no cuts. And frankly, it came to mind because I was thinking, like, what do I talk about in the next podcast episode? Not that it's difficult for me to, like, find something to talk about, but it made me think, like, fuck, wouldn't it be cool if I had a beat to follow where anytime I, I wanted to do an episode, I could just look at the trades and see what's developing and see what other people are seeing, and therefore I could comment on the thing that people are already curious about. Around this time last year, as you may remember, I quit my job at Yard House. And I was unemployed, I was doing some freelance writing, editing things, and I was telling myself, like, you know what, I've served my time in the hospitality industry, I'm gonna fucking find a line of work in which I can apply my skills. Then, I, what ensued from that was a dark night of the soul, where I was like, what are my skills? And podcasting came to mind, like, I hadn't obviously ever thought about this as something where I have, like, pretend, like professional training, I obviously don't, but for a few years now, I've produced a podcast, and for a while, it was sponsored by Adam and Eve. And I've had some reputable people on the podcast. I don't think they knew what they were getting into when they signed up. I started thinking a year ago, like, I I've been doing this a long time. I enjoy it. I think I know more about it than the average person. So let me look for jobs in this space. So I started looking at jobs in Miami and, you know, places abroad, farther out, where I thought maybe I could do some remote work for them. And I even, like, cold called and just cold DM'd a few companies saying like, hey, I dig your brand, or I like what you do in this arena of social media, and I would love to help you produce a podcast. And one, and I noticed in that period of time, whenever I would search on these job aggregate sites like CareerBuilder or Indeed, for, for anything with podcasting in the title, I kept coming across a podcasting studio that was re recruiting talent. And I didn't quite know what that meant. I didn't really know what a podcasting studio meant. So whatever, I saw that they had this application, you could fill it out and you maybe you would be involved in the production of a, a podcast. And it was in South Florida, so I was like, fuck it, whatever, I'll fill out the application. And the application asked for your experience with podcasting, and I was like, oh, I don't really have any experience with podcasting, because reflexively, I've, I've filled out so many fucking job application forms in my life. I was thinking, no, professionally, I have never worked for a podcast, and nobody has ever paid me to work on a podcast. Yes, I've collected some checks from a couple different sponsors over the years, but that was more for like, they wanted me to mention their product and disseminate a little piece of material about it. Like, I was well through the process of filling out that application before I was like, wait, fuck. I do have podcasting experience. So I put it down and I, I was trying to be like humble and discreet about it in the way I would be if I was at a party and someone was like, hey, I heard you have a podcast, which does not happen often. And when it does happen, I feel horribly uncomfortable. If you listen to the podcast, that's been very nice, actually. There are a few occasions where I would be at like Red Bar or Batch Gastro Pub or Pasión del Cielo and I'd be drinking a beer or drinking a coffee and someone would come up and I'm, I feel like this is a result. Okay, I feel like this is a result of two things. One, how I maybe present myself. And then the second thing is I've noticed, I don't know how accurate it is, but Apple Podcasts at least gives you um, some demographics about who listens to your show. And it seems that if you're listening to this podcast, you are either a young man between the ages of 18 and 24, or you are a grown-ass woman between the ages of 28 and 34. But yeah, th three times someone has approached that I didn't know and said, hey, I listened to your podcast. They all, they all said some variation of, hey, you don't know me, 
but I know a lot about you. And that's always weird. And they mention the podcast like two paces into the conversation. Like they start out just talking about how much they know about my life. But so I, I decided like, okay, let me not do the humble thing. Let me try to make this sound like a job interview or, or like a proper resume. And then I submitted that and then I heard nothing. It is uh, 9.20 on Friday morning, and I gotta go to work soon, but I'm sitting on the couch and I'm reading this biography of George W. Bush. And I guess it's more like a history of his administration. It's by Gene Edward Smith. I'm 117 pages in, and I'm reading a chapter called The 2000 Election. But here's a, a good paragraph about George Bush on the campaign trail. Quote, once the campaign began, both Bush and Gore displayed serious flaws on the stump. In Bush's case, it was his seeming unfamiliarity with English grammar and pronunciation. Dwight Eisenhower occasionally played fast and loose with his syntax at press conferences, but it was deliberate on Ike's part to avoid answering a question he wanted to avoid. With Bush, it was a cause for hilarity. He sympathized with Americans trying to, quote, Put food on your family. He believed the important question pertaining to education was, is our children learning? And he told voters in Des Moines that we cannot let terrorists and rogue nations hold this nation hostile or hold our allies hostile. He could never pronounce nuclear and instead said nuclear. Tariffs and barriers became barriffs and terriers. <laughs> Greeks were Grecians and urban pollution was caused by tailpipe admissions. Bush said on August 30th of 2000, well, I think if you're going to do something and you don't do it, that's trustworthiness. Asked about Bush's gobbledygook, his aides said they were the product of an effervescent nature and an agile mind. Quote, his brain works faster than his mouth. And then like a month later, this podcast studio got in touch with me and they were like, hey, here's a link to a video um, and where the CEO of our company explains what he's looking for in the podcasts that he's hoping to produce. And also here is a time block and a um, an address where we would like you to come by and audition. What they meant by audition was to go to like prepare a monologue and then go to this studio and like you record a monologue and the monologue has to pertain to whatever is the topic that you're going to explore in what would hypothetically be your podcast with this podcast network. Sorry, incidentally, for the landscapers in the background. And I was kind of surprised to find that the CEO of this nascent podcasting network was someone I'd seen a lot of on cable television. If you are over the age of 30, I think it's safe to say that this person is someone that you saw a lot of on cable TV. But you, haven't, you have not seen this person on cable TV in probably about 15 years because they got canceled a long time ago. I sought some valuable opinions, and ultimately the consensus seemed to be like, hey, if, you, if you're curious, it sounds like you are, go and like do a monologue. Just go, you'll see their studio, you'll meet some people, and you'll see what that world is like. And if this is your only opportunity to ever set foot in it, that's fine. And I was like, okay, cool. And that's how I like to approach seemingly ambitious or intimidating things is just with zero expectation. And one of the ways that I was like gonna preserve my cool-headed zero expectation-ness was I, I was like, okay, I've done this a million times. You come up with a monologue for a podcast and you go and you record it and it's done. But what I was not gonna do 
was set myself up for disappointment by imagining some kind of show with a podcasting network. And instead, I wrote up in bullet point form on a notebook what I, a monologue about Eric von Stroheim's um, semi-lost masterpiece, Greed. The monologue, I, as I timed it, was like seven minutes long. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to this thing. They're going to ask me, okay, what's, give me the pitch for your show. And I'm going to tell them like, yeah, it's just going uh, it's just going to be like the one, the podcast I currently do. And I would leave it at that. So I get in my car and I'm driving to um, where to this address, which happens to be the home of the uh, company CEO. But it's a massive home on a massive piece of property in a very bougie western part of South Florida. It would normally have been like a 90 minute drive, but one of the lanes was closed on the the highway I was taking. When I saw I was gonna be pretty late, I, I, I called the CEO's assistant, the one with whom I'd been trading emails on my way over. And I told her like, hey, I'm sorry if this is gonna be an issue, but uh, there's a lane closure, I'm gonna be late. She was like, no, it's not an issue. A couple people didn't even show up, don't worry about it. And she said, but if you wanna be able to just like pop in, do your audition and take off, we can do some of the preliminaries here on the phone. And I was like, okay, sure, what's up? And she goes, okay, so what's the what's the podcast gonna be called? And I was like, um, thousand movie projects? podcast and she was like okay what does that what does that refer to what does that mean and right away this is weird because i've never had a job that was like hey can you use your brain all the jobs i've ever had are like hey prior to working here have you ever worked in a place where you had to carry plates on what side of a plate do you put the spoon i'd never really had a job nor had i ever really like gone far along in an interview process where I was competing for the kind of job where people wanted to know what you thought about anything. So she's like, what is your podcast about? And I was like, well, you know, it wasn't, it started out kind of being about movies, but now it's just kind of like, it's about whatever. And she goes, what do you mean by whatever? And I said, well, mostly like, I guess if there's a touchstone, I'd touch on books more than anything, but yeah, just like whatever's happening in my life, I guess it's not really about anything. And she goes, okay, well, you can't do a show about nothing. And the way she said it made me think that, yes, this was a reference to Seinfeld. Let's let's just go with books angle. I'm going to write down here. You're doing a book podcast. That's great. We don't have one of those. And so whatever. We set that up and then I arrive at the, at the house. And the house, as I said, is very big. It's on a big piece of property. And on the, toward the back of the property, there is a separate structure. And that separate structure, it looks like a guest house. And it's right beside a barn with a lot of horses in it. And when I was, some guys were outside and they greeted me and they said, hey, the CEO is not here, nor is his assistant with whom we've been speaking, but she relayed all the details. So just come inside and, and we can set you up. So I go inside and it is like a legit professional studio. There's like five rooms. There's a long ice cold hallway, L-shaped hallway. There's a long conference room where the table is one of those, like, it looks like one of those $10,000 deals where it's like one sprawling single piece of oak. And so we go into this uh, recording studio and um, it's not quite like a recording booth like you see musicians in. There was like a green screen behind me and there was like towers of that egg crate foam material, the soundproofing material. And they sat me down at a rolling chair and there was a very state-of-the-art looking microphone on a crane neck in front of the desk with like six pop filters and there were monitors on the far side of the room and there were two cameras filming me and there was a director sitting with a headset beside the camera and he was checking things on a, on a tablet it was an air of it was a very professional air there was a lot of bustle a lot of mechanics it was very it was very cold whatever long story short they say, okay, you're doing a book thing, go. They start the timer, but they're like, yeah, whenever you're ready, and you know, we're gonna 
just cut it off at seven minutes. I did my monologue, I did it smoothly, I was talking about things that interested me, and I didn't look directly at the camera, they said I didn't have to, I just sort of stared slightly above the far edge of the table, which is how I would have been doing it if I was in my apartment. So I do the whole thing and then I, I fuck up the ending and then I just started laughing and I was like, okay, I promise if I was doing this professionally, I wouldn't have fucked up that ending. They turn off the recording and then they all kind of stood there with their arms folded and they were trading glances and someone like did a kind of tilty head thing. And then the dude who was in charge was like, okay, so not, not if, but when they reach out to you to offer a show. And then he starts telling me a bunch of things. Frankly, I had that moment that people talk about where he said that and like, I kind of stopped hearing and I was like, wait, what is hap What is happening? I'm getting, what? Because I, at the time I was living in a 400 square foot studio apartment with Marie and a 60 pound dog. I was unemployed and shit. I was like, wait, wh how do I go from that to suddenly uh, at this podcasting studio and there's this CEO who's gonna what? So whatever, I go home and they tell me like, the CEO is gonna call you in a few days to discuss a show. So a few days go by, I get that call and it's the CEO. And he does a spiel and he's like, hey Alex, I listened to your thing and I gotta say, it was the, it was, it was very solid, you've got good timing, it seems like you're very experienced at this. And the whole time he's talking to me about this, he's like eating something crunchy and small. Like I think it's, he was thinking he was eating M&Ms or peanuts. He's asking me what I'm interested in and I tell him what I've been reading lately and he was like okay we can do a book show we can focus on biographies because that's what I was binging at the time he's explaining all these things about what we can do what we will do what we should do and finally as though it's an afterthought after like 30 minutes of talking and prepping and planning I was like so how much does this pay and then there's a pause and he says we've been we've, we've had a bunch of meetings about this and we just we've we've realized like it's really it's better for everyone if rather than paying the hosts of these shows rather than paying them whatever it is we would pay 50 80 100,000 we think what's better is we take all that money and we invest it into the show into into advertising it disseminating it and because of connections that i've retained i can get the uh, the hosts profiled in the new yorker the new york times we can really get with all with the money that would have been the salaries we can really promote the shit out of this show. And yeah, and yeah, that sounded sketchy, but at the same time, not beyond the realm of possibility. If you gave me like a $50,000 budget to just promote a show, you like you a lot of shit could happen. And I was like, okay, so is there never at any point going to be payment? And he was like, well, yes, down the line. So basically the structure we've come up with is that once the show has reached 10,000 subscribers, the, the, the talent will be paid with the money that we get from advertising. And I was like, okay, what? how much like half and half and he was like oh no there are costs to production like i said so it would be we're thinking 30 percent of the ad revenue and i was like okay uh and all right so what it's, it's so it's a straight 70 30 and he goes well it's 30 percent net and right away i knew he was full of shit and i would never ever get paid because he went directly from that to talking about how on the subject of our professional relationship i would be signing a contract in which i would commit to 50 episodes in one year. So in one year, hell or high water, no matter what happens, no matter what, no matter what, I would have to do, I would have to generate 50 hours of recorded material and like 50 hours of in the studio recorded material, which would mean 90 minute drives to this studio, 90 minute drives back, probably an hour of production with an hour on either side of it. And I would never get paid because if you don't know about net, that's how they fuck you. Is Ernest Vale you? Partly, sure. 
I feel very. He's a screenwriter. Uh, who, huh? who? He's a screenwriter in Hollywood. Who? <laughs> let me just say this, which is because anyone who's in our business knows who is so stupid he believes <laughs> mm -hmm. that a percentage of net means something right and it's one of the most terrible things because <laughs> they say you're going to get five percent of net right oh yeah oh we'll split net they say and you yeah, just know and, and uh, there's no money there no there was that big movie with tom hanks uh forrest gump yeah the guy who wrote the book got a piece of net winston groom or something what was that uh, what the hell i think winston that groom. Right. Yeah, right, right. right winston groom and he got a percentage of net and uh the picture grossed 170 million dollars. He still hadn't had seen a cent yet. The net income that a business gets is the income after all expenses, the pure profit. But expenses, you can get pretty creative with that kind of accounting. And if the CEO, as a public figure, decides that you know it is very important for the public image of the studio that I go around Miami in a limousine, and that limousine, you know, renting that limousine costs you know, $8,000 a week. So that has to be deducted from the ad revenue. So you will be paid 30% of my, what is left of the ad revenue after I have deducted my business lunches and limousine, limousine chauffeur, whatever. Not that he was going to do something duplicitous like that, but if you ever accept net payment for something, that is the sort of duplicity for which you are opening the door. But anyways, I said, all right, thanks. Uh, yeah, cool. Well, let's do this. And I, we got off the phone because I just couldn't say no to him, to his face, or I guess to his ear. A week later, his assistant got in touch via email, and she was like, hey, let's schedule a uh, time for you to come in and record a pilot, and we can sign the contract. And I was like, hey, sorry, I'm not interested. I thought I was going to get paid. Dude, I swear to God, I picked up my phone after I read that paragraph about George Bush on the campaign trail, and I was like, let me just record this paragraph because that was really funny. And now I read the paragraph after it, and I'm pulling my phone out a second time. So this one is about how Al Gore had the same issue. He gives a big fuck up on the campaign trail. Gore's problem involved resume enhancement. He had an irresistible urge to claim credit where no credit was due. He had not created the internet. He and Tipper, his wife, were not Eric Siegel's models for Love Story. He did not discover the chemical disaster on Love Canal. He had not faced enemy fire in Vietnam, nor had he sent criminals to jail as a reporter for the Nashville Tennessean. During the first presidential debate, Gore claimed to have visited Texas that spring with James Lee Witt, director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, during the wildfires that swept the state, a claim easily disproved since it was Governor George W. Bush who had accompanied Witt. In mid-September, while attacking Bush on the issue of prescription drugs for seniors, Gore claimed that his mother-in-law paid three times as much for her arthritis medicine as his dog Shiloh did for the same medicine which the Boston Globe proved was not true. He told a Teamsters rally that he remembered being... <laughs> he remembered being lulled to sleep as a young boy by his mother singing the garment workers' theme song, Look for the Union Label. A song that was not written until 1975, when Gore was 27 years old. He also claimed credit for taking part in the discussions that led to the creation of the nation's strategic oil reserve, but the oil reserve had been established <laughs> while Gore was in law school, two years before he was elected to Congress. Bush's verbal guffaws made him appear less intelligent than he was. Gore's exaggeration caused him to look weird and untrustworthy. 
and I never heard from them again. And it came to mind today when I was listening to Grace Randolph and I was thinking about how hard she must work in order to generate that much content for her channel. And I was thinking about my own little conundrum, trying to think like, God, what do I want to talk about for today, for this episode? And it struck me like, wow, fuck. Thank God I don't have to fucking generate like an hour episode for some fucking studio that doesn't pay me anything. I just, it was a nice occasion this morning to pause, to think, to remember that whole thing and then look at where I am now and to appreciate like the freedom that I have with this. And I was like, oh my Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast. As I recently mentioned, I just finished a big creative project, and one of the things I'm jumping into to keep myself occupied, try new things, stay challenged, is I've been doodling shit. I've been doodling quite a lot and, like, writing notes to people. So if you're not totally freaked out by the idea of sharing your mailing address and you want to get a little something in the mail from... I was going to say the podcast from me is really the, where you're going to be getting mail from. You can go ahead and send your mailing address to thousandmovieproject at gmail.com. That's thousandmovieproject spelled out. It's the words, no numbers. And in the event that life things haven't swept me up and sort of consumed me in the time between when I'm posting this and when you send it, you should expect something in the mail in the ensuing couple weeks. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.